confess as the song that we just sang, you alone deserve the highest praise. As we reflected upon the gospel in a nutshell last week, and Paul reminded us who we were before Christ saved us, and he reminded us of so great a salvation you orchestrated, you alone could save us. Given a thousand lifetimes, we could never merit salvation. Thank you with great gratitude for the work you've done in your own beloved Son. Thank you for your Spirit who not only drew us to the wells of salvation but helps us week in and week out in our expositions to drink deeply of gospel freshness, unpacking more and more of what you have lavished upon us in your own beloved Son. We ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we listen to your voice in the pages of Scripture. We commit this time to you, asking that it would even uh, prepare our hearts to celebrate around the Lord's table this morning. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know how many of you recollect the Prince and the Pauper, but I thought how apropos to uh, uh, not uh, the Prince and Pauper for our opening il illustration, but this would be a more contemporary version, uh, uh, Prince and Pauper revisited, if you will. Diminutive and frugal Anne Scheiber lived in a tiny Manhattan apartment with peeling paint and thick dust. She reported... She, she reportedly never bought a stick of furniture and rarely bought a newspaper. Though in her younger years she graduated from law school and passed the bar exam, she spent her working days in, as an auditor for the IRS. When she retired at age 50, she invested $5,000 in various stocks and bonds. So over the years, she devoted her life to increasing her profits. By the time that she died at the ripe old age of 101, her moderate investment had grown to a net worth of $22 million. Although she bequeathed much of her money to Yeshiva University, one must wonder at what personal cost she purchased this gift. She lived most of her life unhappy and friendless. During her last five years, she never received one single call, not even from relatives. Wearing an old black coat and a hat, she attended shareholder meetings religiously. If food was served at these meetings, she'd fill a bag and take it to live on for days. She lived her days reading the Wall Street Journal or visiting her brokerage firm's vault to gaze at her stock certificates. While few of us participate in such eccentricities, a person such as Anne Scheiber can provoke us to reassess our own passions and how we invest our lives. Four times in close succession, Paul urged Christians to do good, to be ready, zealous towards good deeds. He defined the believer as one who was eager, ready, and devoted to goodness. Goodness isn't a complicated concept. We don't need to dig through our dictionaries to come to terms with the Word. If we feel compelled to decipher the Word, perhaps we are not seeking clarity but chasing excuses. Goodness encompasses anything morally honorable to God that results in positive effect, especially for others. Deeds of goodness come from a good and transformed heart, and we achieve a good heart by transforming our thinking. To do as, as Paul would write to the Philippians about what, to dwell on uh, what is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, whatever is admirable, if in, there is anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things, Philippians 4.8. A mind preoccupied with good thinking will result in a life devoted to goodness. Opportunities for good deeds present themselves day in and day out in our lives by God's providential design. But we see them only if we look for them. If our focus is trained elsewhere, we miss them entirely. 
So we ought to take inventory of our enjoyments. We ought to take inventory of our objectives and how we spend our time. Even our pursuits do not rank as, they might not rank as obsessions, but they force out other opportunities and obligations. I think we belong to a crowd of moderate fanatics who pursue lesser gods of comfort, material security, or fun. Some might argue about whether Anne Sherbert had a beneficial life. Certainly, her endowment was beneficial to many at the university, but I imagine few of us would want to be remembered with the words, quote, no one paid her much mind when she was alive, unquote. It is far better to order our thinking, our hearts, our lives to pursue the good that comes from God. And if we do, we will not live, as Paul writes to Titus in Titus 3.14 about, we won't live unproductive lives. Paul offered us last week an eloquent theological summary of the gospel and its inherent motivation to profit to profitable good work, good works that we could not engage in before salvation we had no capacity nor any desire so notice where last week's section left off in Titus chapter 3 after exhorting godly living he says in verse 8 of Titus 3 This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. I would like for us to look at closing reminders for ready workers. I trust that that is you this morning. Closing reminders for ready workers. He had written to those who had believed in God and that would be careful to engage in good deeds. Let's continue our read, verses 9 to the end of the chapter. After he says to, uh, about this trustworthy statement, speaking confidently and engaging good deeds, he sets that as the backdrop to which he begins this morning, verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Four reminders the Apostle gives us to show our zeal in working out our salvation expression. Four actions. Two to avoid and two to employ in these remaining comments, these closing reminders. Verses 9 through 11, we see the concluding vices for us to avoid. And in verses 12 through 15, concluding virtues that He admonishes us towards. But let's begin verses 9 through 11, concluding vices to avoid. Paul said to maintain these trustworthy statements as he reminded them and, his, and, and as he reminds us today of our past, who we were without Christ, when we were the foolish, the disobedient, the deceived, the enslaved to various lusts, the pleasures, spending our lives in malice, envy, hateful, hating one another, verse, back in verse number 3. And then after he reminded them of their salvation and, and he reminds, uh, or, or who they were before Christ, then since Christ, but when the kindness of God came and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we've done in, unrighteous, in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, and He justified us. 
Paul says, speak these things confidently. Constantly remind God's people of who they were and who they are in Christ. We'd said last week, pastoral ministry is a lot of not introducing new doctrine and new facts, but reminding us what we've already learned together. So speak them confidently. They are excellent and they are profitable. What we engage in in the exposition of God's Word and the study of His Word week in and week out, this is what profits us for a life of godliness. But, and as He brings the but, and He brings the body of the letter to a close, especially the previous section on the glorious gospel of God's grace, He returns to the counterpart that He introduced back at the end of chapter 1, false teaching. Remember our study in Titus 1, verses 10 through 16 about the church, wherever it is, whenever it meets, the visible church consists of those that know Christ and those that don't know Christ. Those that gather every Lord's Day, there's believers and unbelievers, there's weeds among the wheat, as Christ would talk about. So, in regards to false teaching, what should we, avoid? What should we do? He's, this, this first verb we'll look at, he says avoid. The first call to action, shun them, verse 9. Avoid foolish, foolish controversies, genealogies, strife, and disputes about the law. They're unprofitable and, and worthless. Proper conduct is achieved by avoiding unprofitable things. If we were to take the time, we could give a lot longer list than Paul puts here and fill it in with the rest of Scripture with unprofitable things that are addressed in Scripture. Foolish controversies, genealogies, strife and disputes about the law, the Mosaic law. There are a lot of things we ought to avoid in life. Many word fights about Pharisaic or or Gnostic regulations abound, but that's not what, what Paul Uh, uses as an example here. He warns about becoming embroiled in senseless discussions with the many false teachers on Crete, especially the Judaizers, who contended that the Christian must also be obedient to the Mosaic law. It was a view that assaulted the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, And that teaching is contrary to holy living. Fights about the law was characteristic of false teachers on Crete. It was also, if you want to cross-reference this, go go back to the first pastoral epistle, 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, this was also a feature at Ephesus. 1 Timothy chapter 1, notice what the Apostle Paul wrote to another pastor in the ministry, verses 3 through 7, 1 Timothy 1. Here's what he said to Timothy in his ministry. He says, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions." With that passage in your, the fresh hearing of your ears, think back to what Paul just wrote to Titus as he was talking about the gospel of God's grace and he said that these things are profitable. Speak them confidently. There are other people that speak in confidence which perpetuate error, useless speculations, In the first chapter in which Paul addressed Titus, Titus 1 verse 10, he says, there are a lot of rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Titus, as as I'm sending you to Crete to set in order what remains, 
As you teach healthy doctrine, realize there's a proliferation of false doctrine. People postulate in false ideas. Verse 14 of chapter 1, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. So when... When we visit the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, we are reminded constantly to keep the main thing the main thing. Study God's truth. There's too many useless speculations to take up time and to suck the air out of ministry. Don't be embroiled in senseless discussions. Fits about the law was characteristic on, in Ephesus and on Crete. Titus was to avoid divisive discussions or debates. This is a great reminder for us here on uh, the last day of May 2015. A good reminder that Paul gave so many years ago. In essence, in our evangelism, it is better accomplished by preaching the truth rather than arguing with error because you're always going to find people to argue and to take up valuable gospel opportunity on the peripheral issues. You're always going to find people that are hung up on whether it be the miraculous or things that they can't quite figure out. They'll, they'll postulate that uh, Scripture contradicts itself. We can't believe in an early earth and all this stuff. Always going to be things to get off track. And so in our evangelism, it's always great to say, hey, man, let's get back to that in a moment. And then get right back to the gospel track as you're trying to share with them, what are you going to do with Jesus? Keep coming back to it. The unsaved mind, the stony heart is always going to have hang-ups and excuses until it is subdued by the word of truth, the sword of the Spirit. Don't let rabbit trails take you off task. Keep coming back to what they're gonna, how they're going to respond to your presentation of Jesus and the good news of the gospel. While they were getting wrapped up on useless arguments regarding the Mosaic law and the Old Testament, and you know, it, it seems that people are still getting hung up on uh, uh, just a little side note here. Since this particular issue was in regards to the Old Testament law, the best way to avoid hang-ups, the best way to not misunderstand and to refute with the truth is to know the truth. How do you interpret the Old Testament? What does the church do with the law? You don't throw it out. Notice where you're reading when you're in the Older Covenant. In the progress of Revelation, what did the original hearers know about at that point in which God had revealed Himself when they hadn't gotten the epistles written to the church? Recognize what you do with narrative and stories. What do you do with Jesus in the Old Testament? He's not in every Old Testament verse. Though all the older covenant is pointing forward to His ultimate fulfillment, He's not in every verse. How can we note what the universal timeless truths are, even in promises given to other people if all of Scripture is for us, even if it is not to us? Learn your history. Note the main dates and the people and the places and the timelines the Old Testament is the first two-thirds of God's revelation to us. How do we handle it? The Old Testament is the weakest area of biblical knowledge for the church of Jesus Christ. So we must learn our Old Testament, especially in our relationship to the law so that we not get off base like somewhere on Crete. Learn it well. Even study the genres so that we're not claiming principles as promises. Know the truth well backwards and forwards so you can teach, correct, and admonish in the truth. So getting back to the text, Paul says to this young preacher, this pastor, he says, Titus, avoid foolish 
controversies, genealogies, and strife and disputes about the law. They are unprofitable. Don't even investigate them. Uh, when he says that they are, uh, uh, refers to these controversies as foolish, that term, since we were doing word studies in adult Sunday school, the term used here is moros, from which we get our word what? Moron, moronic. They're foolish, they're stupid, they're silly. Titus, don't spend your time on it. This was one example Paul gave. There are a thousand more. He says they're, they're unprofitable. This is a repeated theme in the pastoral epistles. As he talks about endless genealogies and controversial questions and foolish and ignorant speculations. If it is sound teaching that is profitable... And these that he addresses to Titus are unprofitable. Titus and every faithful servant is to avoid, literally turn away. Don't give it second thought. Don't spin your tires there. They're worthless, idle, empty in the sense of being useless. They're fruitless discussions. Uh, This uh, term worthless can refer to, it can describe idols. It can describe man's wisdom in 1 Corinthians 3.20. It can describe faith in in a non-resurrected Christ in 1 Corinthians 15.17. Or refer to religion that doesn't change a person's behavior in the book of James chapter 1 verse 26. Or this emptiness, this worthlessness can refer, as Peter uses it in 1 Peter 1.18, as a life without Christ. It's empty. It's vanity. There is no purpose to life when you excuse Christ, your Creator, your Maker from it. Some arguments can't be won, no matter how adept your debating skills or well-reasoned your logic. They are unprofitable, they're worthless. We only have so much time with people. Use it wisely. Make sure it's profitable. It is only the Word of God that can convert a sinner. Only God's Spirit can breathe new life into a dead soul. You can reason somebody into something, but some false teacher is going to come along and reason them out of it. But as to those exerting such a a divisive and otherwise destructive influence in the church, Paul says, in, in essence, send them packing. Not only should we avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, strife about and disputes about the law for their unprofitable worthless, but notice in verse 10, Second call to action, reject. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning. This is the second command of action. The instructions are direct and they are specific. There are factious people all over the place. This adjective, heretikos, or heretic, is only here in the New Testament. It's based on the root meaning of choice. One who makes a choice which pleases himself, independent of all other considerations. This seems like a good idea. I'm going to promote it. And I don't care what anybody else says about it. And then I'll start gathering people, as Paul would write to Timothy about uh, teachers being gathered together. He'll gather around himself others of like persuasion and cause schism in the church. Since it is uh, uh, every other week we partake of the Lord's table, it's prudent for us to visit uh, a passage related here. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, such idea is clearly in the church at Corinth. As Paul warned Titus that as he goes around uh, the island of Crete, he's going to find factious people, just like Paul found in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 18 and 19. 
He says that uh, when you come together, speaking to the church at Corinth, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it, for there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. He just talked about uh, Christian order in the local church. Some are coming to the table, they're getting uh, uh, drunk, and people, there's not the consideration and, and taking care of others. Good reminder today that schismatics are not welcome to the Lord's table. They're interested in dividing the body, not unifying the body. They tear asunder the building body and bride of Christ, which Christ alone purchased for Himself. We've seen it in churches too many times. Schismatics who are given too much room, too much wiggle room to destroy the local church. Paul says to Titus, don't even give an inch. Don't just avoid their foolish arguments, but reject them. This is one who has chosen to follow false teachings and practices described in verse 9 over Paul and Titus and others in the Christian community who would embrace true teachings and good deeds, false teachers are divisive. Clearly, this is one of the deeds of the flesh, Paul writes in Galatians 5.20. It's a destructive nature resulting in believers who are confused, frustrated, angry, and hurt, all left behind in the rubble if a factious person is allowed a hearing. Anyone in the church who is unsubmissive, self-willed, and divisive must be expelled, says the Apostle Paul. Must be expelled. I, like you, want to salvage just as many people. Is there a way to, to bring them along? I don't want to lose any. But we must not think of just the person, but what about the whole? What about the destructive doctrines? The health and purity and unity of the church and her mission is at stake. You look at uh, statistics that are out there on, uh, you talk with churches who are faithful to church discipline. Most who get all the way to being excommunicated from the church never return. There is not gospel humility which demonstrates an unregenerate heart. Most never return. Most never repent. They've not owned their sin and taken the painstaking steps towards reconciliation and confession and repentance and forgiveness and restoration. It's a beautiful thing, on the contrary, when there is humble teachability and change. But when you look at the vast number of scenarios, if you love somebody enough to confront them truth and love, confront them with their sin that biblically and faithfully exposes the facade of their religiosity that they were hiding behind, they just leave the church. The way they end dealing with their sin is let's just get out of it. Let's go to a place which takes a a little easier approach on, on sin and we'll move on to the next church and take our same set of issues, a divisive spirit with us. Or they'll stay at home isolating themselves, seeking their own desires and rebellion against God's plan for the age, the church, and the body of Christ. Notice what Paul concludes here. He he says, so so we're to avoid the foolish debates. We're to reject a factious man after the first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning being self-condemned. Their actions seal their condemnation. Be sure about these three things about them. If somebody is is a heretic, if somebody is factious, there are three things, three characteristics he gives us. He says, first of all, they're perverted. Strepho means to, uh, the way it's translated in the Didache is, is turn to something evil. It speaks of a settled position remaining off track constantly from that point on. Being warped. 
kind of like the rotors on my Jeep that I need to replace. Uh, there's no future and causes great difficulty with the braking system on 84 out here. That is basically your divisive person is, who is setting their tracks to cause havoc unless you replace them. That may sound harsh, but that is obedience. He says they're perverted. They're warped. Person has moved away from the apostolic message by choice. They've made their bed, now they have to sleep in it. He says they're perverted. Second of all, he says they're sinning. Since they are in the wrong and they are in rebellion, they are to be rejected. They're warped in pursuing their own agenda. They're not pursuing God's agenda. They might claim the name Christian out of allegiance to Christ, but they're not following Him. Pull back the facade that the, of the, the hypocrisy and religiosity that they're living in. They're sinning. They're obstinate, willfully sinning when they don't agree because of their human heart and love for their agenda. You, know, you take a factious person that is allowed to stay planted in the local church, they're going to demolish that local assembly because their problem becomes everyone else's problem. Whoever they can get a hearing from so that they can make their problem everyone else's problem. Paul says they're perverted, and they are sinning. Don't become a part of their sin. Thirdly, uh, actually, before we move on to this third, uh, remember what he just said to do. He says reject them. The term means dismiss, remove from fellowship of the Christian community. You can use the synonym avoid or shun. So the first obligation is to admonish that person at fault. Point out their error of their action, their doctrine. And if that admonition, that first admonition, is ineffective, give them a second. You might say, well, wow, that's, that's giving them a, law, uh, a long rope. Well, that's patience, isn't it? Second. And then after... Uh, after shunning their argument, verse 9, you shun the person themselves, verse 10. So if he still disregards, further dealing is just a waste of time. It's a waste of time. It merely gives the offender undeserved publicity. I like how uh, Edmund Hebert puts it in his commentary. He aptly sums up the reasonableness of this rejection. He said, quote, further efforts would not be a good stewardship of his time and energies and would give the offender an undeserved sense of importance, unquote. That's not harsh. That's not unloving. That is knowing that the time that you continue to invest in somebody who is warped and sinning and will not change is a choice to not invest that time into those who are teachable and responding in biblical obedience. We could look at scenario after scenario of what we've seen in churches. You know, I know of one circumstance where a, a, a person was being factious in the local church, and she was not being responded to the way she wanted to. She would not meet for reconciliation, and so chose the poor means of email communication. And every time her emails were not responded in the way that she thought they ought to be, it upped the intensity of the anger and the aggression in this hostile, fuming circumstance. Solomon wisely warns us, do not answer a fool according to their folly. And so with up in the intensity with every correspondence, she was seething because she couldn't get her pound of flesh. But there comes a time where we do need to answer a fool as their folly deserves. Notice that third characteristic about them. Paul says they're perverted, they're sinning. Thirdly, they are self-condemned. Self-condemned. A factious man or woman brings judgment on himself, in other words. They've refused correction. A factious person actually participates in his own condemnation. That's what Paul's saying here. 
Yes, we can still pray that God somehow would be merciful to draw them to repentance. We still pray for their soul. Even when they've left the assembly. But no fellowship is possible with such a person. They've chosen their own path. Paul instructs us here on how we are to deal with difficult people in the church. What we are to avoid. His words are similar to and consistent with the Lord's instructions in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17 on church discipline. Jesus gave instruction on church discipline before the church was even in existence. I think it's marvelous how that Paul's instructions here are in perfect harmony with Christ so many years before that. Reminding us no Scripture stands in isolation to contradict other passages. We must read them in harmony with other passages. Back in in Matthew 18, we're told that the offender has three chances to repent and then get cut off. Not so here. And And Paul is not negating Jesus' words. Note uh, a different scenario, a, a different passage that we would import in our understanding here in, in, in Romans 16. The last chapter of that epistle, verses 17 through 20, he writes to that local church. He, he says to the Romans in Romans 16, 17, I urge you, brothers, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and his hindrances contrary to the teaching which you've learned, and turn away from them. Be discerning. As you shepherd the flock, keep your eye open for those that are divisive and causing, causing controversy, that are not holding to the apostolic doctrine that's being taught in the church. Make note of them. Verse 18, he says, such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached all, therefore I'm rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent and what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Much grace needed. In our relationship to those who would be involved in endless argument or be divisive. Two calls to arms. It says avoid and reject. How about two concluding virtues to affirm verses 12 through 15? Learn to engage in good works is the first call to arms, call to action. Notice Notice what he said, uh, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Verse 13, diligently help Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Verse 14, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. So let's camp on that thought for just a moment. One of the major themes we have seen through this epistle, repeated emphasis on good works, especially as our good works provide the platform for our evangelism. People are more inclined to listen to us speak about our Redeemer if they see our redemption manifest in our lives. As we adorn the gospel in our attitudes and our actions. So this first action, he says, learn to engage in good works. He'd been stressing the need for good works, not to earn salvation, which is impossible, but to serve others as an expression of love to the Lord. They matter. Good works don't matter because they merit God's favor. They couldn't. But they show that you've got a new heart, one that's devoted to God and transformed by His grace and His gospel. The fact that the believer has to be taught ought to mean something to us. Titus, teach them to be practitioners of good works. Why do we have to be taught? That points out it's not our normal course in life, nor the natural course of our human heart towards good works. 
We must be programmed. We must be equipped in the Word. We must receive shepherding admonitions to be concerned for others' needs and do the things that help others. We must be trained to be others devoted rather than devoted to ourselves. Our own sinful propensity is ingrown, is it not? And so we must constantly be taught and reminded how to engage in good works. It's reiterated here as Paul ends his epistle to Titus. One more time he says it. One that's Uh, The Christian faith has to find its outlet in daily life. So how is that expressed in your life, beloved? Evaluate it. Are you looking for and responding to each providential opportunity God gives you for good works? I think of a couple of different scenarios. Some of you have a, a hard time learning to say no. You're always willing to serve. You want to be a blessing to your brothers and sisters in Christ, but you get stretched so thin. And yet, several of you have a hard time on the other side of the fence saying yes, especially looking for opportunities, even taking the initiative. Think about what this looks like for for us to put a handle on this truth and take it with us this week. What does it mean that our people are learning to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful? How can I be fruitful to the glory of God to show forth the transforming work of grace that's taken place in my heart? Do you spend time calling people? Or stopping a person on Sunday to ask, how specifically can I pray for you this week? Or, hey, I hear you're going in for surgery. Can I drop off a meal? Can I watch your kids? How can I serve you? How about uh, pastor? Is there any way I could uh, serve on nursery rotation as a way to come alongside our young parents? Or elders? I know we've got newer believers here, and I'm wanting to disciple my way through fundamentals of faith. Is there somebody in the church I could take through the study with me? You know, by grasping opportunities, the Holy Spirit is enabled to make our lives fruitful and productive. Let's make sure that we take heed to engage in good deeds to, prefer, to, to produce fruit for the praise and glory of our God. And, Then Paul ends his letter like all his other letters on a personal note. If the first call to action of what we, the virtue, the grace we are to employ in our lives is being eager for good deeds, a second could be captured in, if we wanted to alliterate with good deeds, how about greet? Notice what's emphasized in these concluding verses. Verse 15 He says, greet those who love us in the faith. That's a command, beloved, a command to greet one another. Verse 12, he says that we are to make every effort. Titus was to do that. He was to leave his ministry to come minister to Paul and to make every effort. Verse 13, diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos. You notice the relational aspect here? So, we'll wrap all these up in the same point of greeting. Artemis, we know nothing uh, about. Tychicus, however, is known in Colossians 4-7 as a beloved brother and faithful minister. What a great caption to have on your tombstone. This is the way to go out. Beloved brother, faithful minister, is that what's known about you? He accompanied Paul from Corinth to Asia Minor in Acts 20, verse 4. He carried Paul's letter to the Colossians and possibly his letter to the Ephesians. Apparently, one of these guys, either Artemis or Tychicus, was going to be the guy that took over for Titus when Titus went on the winter reprieve to spend time with Paul. So they're both faithful men. Notice this other gentleman, Zenos. 
Another person we know nothing except for his expertise in either biblical law or Roman law. He's a lawyer. Yes, they can get saved. Amen. Look at uh, another guy. He, he, he puts in Holy Scripture this man, Apollos. He, he's not new to us. He's a familiar fellow worker, originally from Alexandria, an outstanding teacher of Scripture. We're told in Acts 18 he'd been converted to Christ after being acquainted only with the teaching of John the Baptist. He, like us, has some strong points. He was a great teacher, but he rubbed people the wrong way as well. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, we find that uh, some of his followers, whether he taught them this way or not, some of his followers developed a faction in Corinth. But in this personal letter, we see Artemis, Tychicus, Zenos, Apollos. They were to be received and outfitted. Notice the principle, the carryover for us. It is very possible that uh, they'd be bearers of this letter. And so the, if you've got the, when, it, when he says diligently help them, verse, verse 13, if you've got the ESV, maybe it translates this, make speed, propempson, to diligently help or send forward on a journey. This theme all through Scripture is that when somebody is a minister of the gospel, somebody is in, in the ministry serving the Lord, you'd provide them with supplies and funds or whatever else is needed, a, a warm bed. Supplying of traveling teachers who proclaim the gospel was a reasonable and honored expectation among Christians. It's even implied that at times you would escort that traveler part of the way. As I was uh, tracing this through and reflecting on it, Paul and Barnabas are sent on their way. There's, there's that phrase, sent on their way by the church. Paul and his traveling companions were escorted on to, to their journey by men, women, and children, often kneeling down and praying with one another. He writes to others about how you've helped me on my journey. Make sure, beloved, that you send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Does that characterize our relationships? It speaks of relationship, companionship along the road. We're fellow pilgrims. So how engaged are you in establishing and strengthening those ties? Do you come early? Do you stay late? Is relationship part of your agenda? Though you're not restricted to these alone, whether it be fellowship dinners or prayer meeting or home fellowships, what might it look like in life, your life? Maybe you'd consider establishing one night or one night a month or every other Sunday afternoon on the Lord's day, His day, to greet one another for encouragement in your walk and mutual edification. So notice how the Apostle underscores the relational side of our walk with Christ, with the saints. When we come to the Lord's table, we come, what, together. We serve in the body together. We learn together. Don't underestimate this Pauline priority and this absolute scriptural underpinning for image bearers of our triune God as reflect God, the God who has perfect fellowship in the Trinity, what priority do you place on one anothering one another with all these commands in the New Testament? We are essential to the sanctification and service work in the local church. It says, greet them with love in the faith. Grace be with you all. So the letter ends where it began back in chapter 1, verse 4, with God's grace, charis, a prayer for it to be realized in the lives of each believer. Because Paul is persuaded grace alone brings salvation, and grace alone produces godly lives. He used it in the first chapter, and he'll use it at the end of this epistle. Matter of fact, if you want to be reconciled with the original language, put a little S 
after grace here, or, or, or after you. He's talking to you alls. He's writing in the plural, indicating he was aware he was not just writing to Titus, but to the churches who would receive this in that day and the days to come. He asked that this grace continue its work in the life of all in the church in Crete and all who are in Christ by repentant faith. So this final condemnation and final commendation. God's plan of salvation calls for strong churches that proclaim and live the reality of the transforming gospel so that it's attractive to the lost. Such a testimony is built on sanctified relationships, and as we examine our relationships, we see that there are times with false teachers, there are factious people, there are fellow servants, and there are faithful friends are responding with gospel grace in all of them for the praise of our God. Would you pray with me? Father, we do pray as Paul prayed that Your grace would be multiplied in our midst, not just in what we receive from You, but what we receive from others and commit to others by Your grace. Use us as sanctifying tools in each other's hands to encourage and exhort, to admonish at times. Though there are difficult times in the church where the right thing is to do the hard thing and confront error and to confront sin, and yet you promise to be in the midst where two or three are gathered for that express purpose, you are there. You promise your power and your honor and your praise be upon those who are obedient in those situations. And as we come to your table, we think of the gospel message of who we were without Christ, without hope, without God in this world. We were the divisive, we were the factious, we were the disobedient then You lavished Your love upon us in Christ. We give You eternal praise and glory for accomplishing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And as we seek to be faithful, engage us in this battle of sanctification. Engage us in being a holy church, one that is more like Christ this week than we were last week, progressing in the image of Christ. We reflect upon this at this table. We give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.